Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. This is Audio Judo, your podcast of music discovery. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. They are the premier source of music podcasts with annual downloads in the millions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something I just added, and I didn't even have it in my notes. They just released their app. Yeah. Pantheon Podcast app that has uh, all of the shows that you're familiar with, including us on there. So check it out. You can find that in the App Store or what do they call the Android thing? So they have an app store as well. Play store? Play store? Play store. Find it there. But uh, we are so glad you decided to tune in for this episode. Yeah. Uh, If you like what you hear, please keep in mind that this is being recorded right at the beginning of our fourth season of Audio Judo, and there are almost 90 other episodes for you to (laughs) discover and listen to. Besides this podcast, we also produce two other podcasts that are distributed through Pantheon. Uh, There's our jazz program, Audio Judo Does Jazz, which is coming out with season two shortly. Not shortly, but within the next couple months. There's also Throughline, a podcast that attempts to find the common concept between songs on an album. So give those a listen as well. Uh, but we also have additional content for this show. Yeah. Uh, and that is some stuff you can only get by subscribing to our Patreon account. Kyle? Let me tell you a little bit about it. So uh, the front row seat tier of our Patreon is $5 per month. And for that five bucks, you get a shout out by name at the end of every episode of the podcast. Two day early access to full episodes, usually. Uh, access to bonus mini episodes that Matthew was just talking about that we call judo chops and occasional bonus little bits of unedited content, uh, some extended interviews and things when we do those. And a lot of the stuff that we had to cut out of episodes because they were just too long or too filled with farts. You want to step up and really help the podcast? We also have the backstage pass tier. It's $20 a month. And for that, you'll get to do everything that the front row seats tier does. But you'll also get a very special personalized gift after being at that tier for three months. And the big one, a chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo uh, on the album of your choice. That benefit activates after one year of patronage at that tier and can only be activated once. But we will do any uh, album that you want. Uh, You can pick something good. You can pick something terrible. You can pick your own album if you've got one. So... Also, those two are a little bit too expensive and you still want to help out the podcast. We do have a new tier. We've been calling it the Shout It Out Loud tier because uh, we premiered it on our Kiss episode. Mm-hmm. It's only a dollar or a euro or a pound or a ruble or whatever your local currency is per month. Uh, and for that, you can help us keep making the podcast. And in return, we'll give you a shout out uh, at the end of every episode. Uh, we still don't have anybody that signed up for that tier yet. That's not true. Oh, did we get somebody? Yeah, Simon. Uh, today. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Well, there we go. I missed that when I printed the list last night. So, yeah, it was this morning. Well, thank you, uh, Simon. And you're getting your shout out at the beginning of the episode. So thank you very much. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so this week's episode, like so many of our episodes, is a very special one as we go back to the grunge era. Uh, and what I think is my favorite album of that period. We are talking about the 1991 album Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden. Definitely one of the funnest album names. Oh, I love it. Bad Motorfinger. All one word. Bad Motorfinger. Bad Motorfinger. And I would say, Kyle, that this is not only my favorite album of the grunge sound, but this is my favorite band of the grunge sound. Really? As well. Uh, of all the bands from that period, I think it's a fair assessment to say that they were the most metal of any of those oh, bands. Yeah. Allison Chains probably coming in a close second, but they were also the most experimental of those bands. They dabbled a lot in odd tunings and songs that had really different structures and stuff like that. Yeah. There was a lot of originality to their sound at a time when bands were just being run out there because they were from Seattle. Yeah. 
And this was a powerful statement into that genre, that while there would be a semi-cohesive sound to the grunge movement, uh, not all of it was going to be alike, and I think that's important to note. Not every band was going to sound like Nirvana or Pearl Jam, uh, although there's plenty of clones of those (laughs) bands. Uh, but this isn't one of them. And I definitely feel like Soundgarden is kind of the the overlooked major grunge, grunge band because they're not, I mean, they sold 14 million records in the US and 30 million worldwide. Uh-huh. They're not some garage band. Um, but when you ask people, you know, hey, what grunge bands do you like? Nirvana, Pearl Jam, occasionally Alice in Chains. Uh, you maybe know, Stone Temple maybe Pilots. Maybe Stone Temple Pilots or somebody like that. Soundgarden rarely comes up unless it's somebody who's a big fan of Soundgarden right. and they're, they list them first. But beyond that, it's not... They just didn't stick in the cultural consciousness. They don't get mentioned in that conversation very Exactly. Often. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they kind of straddled that line between they were a grunge band for sure, mm-hmm. but they were also a metal band. Mm-hmm. And those were the two camps that everybody kind of divided up into in this point in the 90s was, are you a metal person or are you a grunge person? Right. And to be a band that kind of straddled those two, if you were on the metal side of things and you liked them, everybody's like, screw you, you like a grunge band, get the hell out of here. <laughs> And if you were on the grunge side of things and liked them, people were like, whatever, man. Because that's how everybody that was into grunge talked at the time. Right, moody and uh, brooding. Like, oh, I don't care. I don't even care. I don't care. But I definitely feel like they have been sort of the forgotten, like, grunge child. I agree. You know? And it's a shame because their music is great. Right. And this was their third album. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we talk about Bad Motorfinger, let's talk about Soundgarden for cool. a bit. Uh, beginnings of Soundgarden start a few years before the formation of the band when Seattle friends Hiro uh, Yamamoto and Chris Cornell formed a band called The Shimps in the early 80s. Uh, at the time, Yamamoto was the bass player and Cornell was the drummer and singer. Yamamoto left the band and The Shimps recruited Kim Thale to replace him on bass, uh, and I'm not sure about you, Kyle, but I could find no other information about any of the other members of the Shimps. Yeah, I got nothing. Nothing. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but I couldn't find it. Uh, anyway, Thale and Yamamoto had known each other for a little while. Uh, they had moved together from Illinois to Seattle a few years previous with Bruce Pavitt. Pavitt would become the creator of Sub Pop Records mm-hmm. that was responsible for signing a lot of the Seattle-based grunge bands to their first contracts, including Nirvana that we talked about extensively on that episode. The Shemps would eventually break up, and Yamamoto and Cornell had stayed in touch, and they began jamming together, this time with Thale in tow. So Soundgarden officially formed in 1984 with Cornell on drums and vocals, Yamamoto on bass, and Thale moving to guitar. They named themselves after, did you find this, after a wind-channeling pipe sculpture Ooh. Uh, that's called A Soundgarden, which is located at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration at Magnuson Park in Seattle. Oh. So the sculpture sits right on the shore of Lake Washington. I think I've seen that. You probably have. You mentioned it. Yeah, it was designed in 1982 by Douglas Hollis, and it consists of 12 21-foot steel structures at the top of which sits an organ pipe attached to a weather vane that plays really soft sounds when the wind pushes through it. It's really cool. I didn't, I didn't know it had that name. Yeah, it's I, called now that you say A Soundgarden. Yeah. And it, interesting. And that's all that aside, it's not in my notes either. This is probably one of the best band names. Soundgarden is just a cool it's name really for good. a band. With all the other shit like the Shemps and, uh, you know, so many other band names that were like, <laughs> that name Soundgarden is just such a cool name to have. Yeah. After they kind of got together, sorry, I lost my space in my notes here. That's all right. Uh, Chris Cornell actually ended up switching to rhythm guitar mm-hmm. and he was replaced by uh, Scott Sundquist uh, and then later Matt Cameron in 1986. He wrote uh, left the band in 1990 and was replaced by uh, Jason Everman and then later Ben Shepard. So again, like we talked about, we talk about this. I feel like we talk about this with every band from this era. In the beginning, there was a lot of rotation. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of swap out of, of people. Um, like we said earlier, they were one of the really early Seattle grunge sound bands. Yeah, there uh, were a few at the time that had appeared on a compilation called Deep Six yeah. that had uh, Green River, Skin Yard, Malfunction, and the Melvins. Of those bands, the only ones that I'd ever heard of uh, were Malfunction and the Melvins. Yeah, I was about to say, I've heard of the Melvins before. Melvins had a very strong connection to Nirvana. Um, there was a very strong connection between them and uh, Kurt Cobain. 
And in 86, they got a new manager, Susan Silver, Mm -hmm. Chris Cornell's then girlfriend and eventual wife. Uh, And they also got a new drummer. You said Matt Cameron because Sunquist left. Mm -hmm. And then sometime in 1986, local Seattle DJ Jonathan Poneman saw them perform and stated that they, quote, were everything rock music should be. And he offered to fund a release by the band. Thale immediately referred him to Bruce Pavitt, and they were able to secure funding of $20,000 to turn Sub Pop into a fully fledged label, which means Soundgarden is responsible for Sub Pop label at the beginning, in turn signing all these other bands, um, which is (laughs) huge. And it enabled all these bands to get discovered and signed with bigger labels, which event, you know, had a ripple effect getting to our ears as it would. And the band would record and release their first single, Hunted Down, in 1987, and later that same year would release Screaming Life, their first EP. At this point, the band was being heavily courted by major labels, but instead the band would sign with independent label SST Records in 1988, and their debut record called Ultra Mega OK was released on Halloween 1988. Yeah. Good day to release it. Right? And it, it did It did okay. didn't really sell particularly well, but it was a critical darling, and it was actually nominated for a Grammy, which is pretty impressive for a first album. Uh, yeah. Best metal performance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead. Oh, I would say they recorded their second album uh, independently, but ended up signing with A&M uh, before it came out. So A&M pushed for the release of it. Um, they were also one of the very first grunge bands to move on and sign with a major label, mm-hmm. which, you know, suddenly blew up right after them. Suddenly, you know, major labels were looking for every grunge band they could possibly get their hands on. Um, that album, their second album, Loud, Louder Than Love, uh, became their first major label release. And it peaked at a, number 108 on the Billboard 200 chart. So again, not amazing, but not horrible either. I, I mean, you know, those are some sales. Uh, yeah, but the album got the dreaded parental advisory sticker yeah. on it, mostly for the lyrics to Big Dumb Sex, which is a parody of <laughs> glam bands uh, that write about the same thing. Just instead of sexual innuendo being used, Cornell goes right for it and uses the word fuck 27 times in the song. <gasps> 27 times? But of course, the, that parental advisory sticker always had the re- reverse effect. Now we all wanted to hear it and we're curious <laughs> what the reason for the sticker was. So thanks, PMRC, for always boosting sex. Sales. Fucking Tipper Gore. Right? So Hiro Yamamoto was now disenchanted with the band, and right after the sessions were concluded, he quit the band and went back to college. He would eventually re-enter the music scene a few years later with the band Truly, with members of the Screaming Trees, stayed in the scene even until now, but never with the success that he even had at the limited beginnings of Soundgarden. Uh, the last group that he was in was called Stereo Donkey. And we go back <laughs> to really good band names like Soundgarden, <laughs> and then really bad band names like, like Stereo, Stereo Donkey. Donkey. I'm just saying. (laughs) So he was replaced uh, in Soundgarden by Jason Everman, who had been the original bass player for Nirvana. Yeah. We talked about that before. Uh, On the tour, they supported Voivod, Faith No More, others. uh, And the day that they returned from the tour... Andrew Wood, lead singer of another Seattle-based band, Mother Love Bone, uh, overdosed on heroin. And he was Chris Cornell's roommate at the time, and it affected him greatly, as a lot of things would. A few days later, he found himself on tour in Europe writing songs in a hotel room. These songs would eventually become the basis of Temple of the Dog, which became hugely popular a couple years later due to the explosion of grunge. One more thing about Louder Than Love. That album was supposed to be called Louder Than Fuck. <laughs> Apparently, they wanted to name it Louder Than Shit. And someone said, that's what kids are. That's what kids thought of it. But really, it should be Louder Than Fuck. And when Susan Silver, their manager, went to the label to deliver the record, she said, quote, no band that I'm representing is going to put out an album called Louder Than Fuck. So she renamed it herself Ugh. Louder Than Love. <laughs> Without their approval. Yeah, that's messed up. That's messed up. Uh, so when the band returned from Europe, they fired Jason Everman. Yeah, which seems to be a recurring theme for sure. Band. Fire Jason Everman. Okay. What have you done today? Well, mm-hmm. we didn't fire Jason Everman. Do that. Yeah, do Let's that do first. that. So he was replaced uh, in the band by Ben Shepard, who brought a fresh and creative approach to the recording sessions uh, and to which Cornell says he redefined the sound of the band. Yeah. Uh, the band returned to the studio to record the album that we're going to talk about today, Bad Motorfinger. One word, Bad Motorfinger. Bad Motorfinger. The 
album was released on October 8th, 1991, at the confluence of one of the most amazing months in the history oh. of record releases. Right. This would be the last release in a four-week period that saw the release of Nirvana's Nevermind, Pearl Jam's 10, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic. All four of those records were not only huge sellers, but they were genre-defining, earth-shattering records. But also, let us not forget what else came out in September of 1991. Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Ooh. A Tribe Called Quest's Low End Theory. Ooh. Ozzy's No More Tears. Rush's Roll the Bones. R.E.M.'s Out of Time. Smashing Pumpkins' Gish. And then in October, Girlfriend by Matthew Sweet. Diamonds and Pearls by Prince and the New Power Generation. Slow Deep and Hard by Type O Negative. And then in August as well, Spin Doctor's Pocket Full of Kryptonite and a little metal album called The Black Album by Metallica. Jesus Christ. This may have been the most important and fertile period in the history of rock music. And right in there came this release. No wonder it's overlooked. What happened like in that previous year to to like October 91? Yeah, and there were others that I left out that weren't as big, but still were were to me. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, a lot. Um, This was their highest charting album to that point, topping out at number 39. We'll go on to sell 2 million copies. Nominated for the best performance Grammy, best metal performance Grammy once again, and would see them touring with Guns N' Roses for most of the year on the Use Your Illusion tour. But of course, not everybody loved it. Our old pal, Robert Christigau, is up to his (sighs) usual bullshit. He said of the album, it's credible as a metal record because of Thale's impressive use of guitar noise, but less impressive lyrically, writing, Chris Cornell howls on about looking for the paradigm and Jesus Christ pose. I swear that's the good stuff. Those are his words. I know it's pretty obvious that I really I really like to pick on this guy because he is so chronically wrong about records. But come on. <laughs> How often can you miss the boat? If you are wrong so often about amazing records, why do people still read your shit? Why do people keep employing you? So Robert Christigau, in case anybody doesn't know, he has a website where he has posted every review he's ever written. Yep. And he also does, what are they called? The short reviews or where they're like mini, they're miniature little, like less than 10 words each reviews for every album that comes out. Every single album that has come out. Yep. Um, I guarantee he's not listening to. Oh, no. Uh, I would be super curious to go back and see, statistically speaking, if he said it was a bad album where the sales number is really good. And if he said it was a good album where the sales number is really bad. Oh, my God. And how much of the time that correlates. Did you really just think of that? Or did you have that in your notes? No, that just popped into my brain right now. Because I literally have... I'd love to spend some time figuring out how many records were sold of records that he dogged. Hundreds and hundreds of millions, I think. But that would be a real investment of time, and I don't want to yeah. give him that much attention. That is fucking weird, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody out there who's uh, smarter than me, please write uh, a, a computer program that will just do that. Right? Just, just. Got to be some sort of algorithm oh, or yeah. something I can. I'm sure there is. Someone could devise. Siri, tell me. No. So. <laughs> I'm so, sorry, uh, I just activated everybody's phones everywhere, by the way. Alexa, <laughs> screw you guys. Just kidding. Uh, do you have, uh, you have that, any more? That's pretty much everything. Yeah, I think you covered just about everything. It did hit uh, number, you said number 39, but that is in the UK and US. Oh, yeah. Hit, hit the same uh, in both countries. Number 50 in Canada, number 54 in Australia. It also hit number eight on the US Tastemaker Albums chart in 2016 when it was re-released. So that's Taste pretty good. Tastemaker. It's a real thing. Yeah. Are we talk about the album artwork? Let's talk about it. The cover has a bad Motorfinger logo. So uh, cool. Which was drawn by guitarist Mark Dancy of the sub pop uh, band Big Chief. Big Chief. This consists of a, a jagged cyclone-like design in the center of which is a triangle that has the album's title along with the interior perimeter and a spark plug in the middle of it. I know. It's cool. I've yeah. always loved it. It's, I, a, it's a good logo. I like the, the cover of this. And album. I love the font that they use for, for Soundgarden. So the art direction was done by Len Peltier. Yeah. Uh, who was primarily the art director for AM Records for many years and is currently the head of global creative for the Levi Strauss company. Oh, good for him. Right? So he's getting the big corporate dollars. Yeah. Dollars. Yeah, he, he directed the whole thing. Uh, the design itself uh, was by a company called Wahlberg Design. That's a one-man company of designer Peter Wahlberg uh, who's worked with a lot of different uh, bands and recording artists over the years. See one of the lesser-known Wahlbergs? As far as I can tell, he is not related to Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> uh, and the photos inside the album cover are by uh, Michael Levine, uh, Denver born, uh, but now New York-based photographer. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Sorry. Who has a huge list of uh, music-related clients. So I don't know if you just heard Matthew go, Ugh, in the background. 
I have made a very poor choice of alcoholic beverages for tonight. Um, Sorry, everybody. Four flavors in one box, and all four flavors are shit. So uh, uh-huh. not going to call them out by name. But, Do this uh, face. Mm. Yeah. Ooh. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, oh, is there more the, art the stuff? Name, uh, I got one more thing about the name of this Go. album, too. So Kim Thiel suggested the title Bad Motorfinger as a joke on the Montrose song Bad Motor Scooter. And he said of it, quote, it was sort of off the top of my head. I simply liked it because it was colorful. It was kind of aggressive, too. It conjures up a lot of different kinds of images. We like the ambiguity in it, the way that it sounded and the way that it looked. I do like ambiguity. Right? See, and what's funny is when I started, uh, you know, I like to just mention to people that know we have a podcast, what, what we're going to be talking about soon. And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, what do you got? Upcoming episodes. And I said, Soundgarden. And they're like, oh, I love that record. And they all kept saying, I love that record. Turns out they're all talking about Super Unknown and not this record. Yeah. The one that's got Black Hole Sun on it because they're like, when I'm like, no, it's Bad Motor Finger. They're like, well, what's what's on that record? I'm like, never mind. Just yeah, forget. Don't worry it. about it. Listen to the episode. Exactly. Don't, don't, I'm not going to get into it with you. So I came to know Soundgarden through my cousin on uh, Thanksgiving, Ooh. 1990. Uh, my cousin Steven and his family were over for dinner and he and I were hanging in the basement and never really had been close cousins. We were holiday cousins. You know, saw him on Thanksgiving, Christmas, graduation, milestone birthday, and at funerals. It's pretty much all you saw him for. Usually our conversations have been about local sports teams and such. I see that face. It's it's terrible. I know. But he was a year younger than me. So about this time, we were 17 and 16. And we started talking about music a little. And he asked if I had heard of a band called Soundgarden and the song called Full On Kevin's Mom. Uh, (laughs) And I was like, I had heard of them because I had seen a couple of their songs on 120 Minutes. And he asked if I had a tape deck that could do high-speed dubbing. Oh, yeah. And I said, duh, of course I do. Uh, it's 1989. Uh, yeah. So he had the tape of Louder Than Love in his dad's car and grabbed it and I dubbed it. I was blown away by the sounds, you know, so different. And I always thank him for that. I think since that day in 1990, I've oh, seen sorry, him. 1990. I've seen him a probably 10 times since then, mostly funerals. Mm. But it's just a nice memory of him, like a cousin, because I don't have yeah. a lot of cousin memories. But the first time I listened to this record was about four days after it came out. I was driving up to Michigan State University to spend the weekend with show consultant Chris. Uh, it was the perfect length as it lasted the whole trip. <laughs> and the record was a revelation. I immediately wanted to share it with everybody. And I started playing it around campus and stuff. The other attachment I have to this album before we move to the track by track is that this record is the record that I was listening to the night that I met Heather for the first time. Oh, I was hanging out at home. And I didn't really want to be there. And I knew that my church youth group was doing something that evening. So I took off, put this album in my tape deck and blasted it on the way over to the Warren Racket Club where everyone was playing <laughs> volleyball. Familiar with volleyball? No, it's not at all. What it's, is volleyball? Uh, it's volleyball played in a racquetball court with a really large racquetball, essentially really bouncy, racquetball. okay, big, huge. And so, but you can use the walls because they put a net across. It makes sense. The the racquetball court. So she was down there. Uh, there she was, high top Converse, U of M t shirt, Mickey Mouse shorts, hair pulled back in a ponytail, and I was smitten. That was it. And this album always reminds me of that. So happy memories all around yeah. from a rather dark metal like record. I'm glad you said Mickey Mouse shorts and not Mickey Mouse gloves because that would have no. been pretty weird. Yeah, it was just four, walking around with big, four huge white fingers. <laughs> like bouncing the you ball off him, the wall. You need them to play volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to do, uh, take a pause here and do a yeah, track by track? let's take a quick break and we'll come back and do a track by Sounds track. Sounds good. your kitchen the upgrade it deserves with clearview cabinetry clearview cabinetry starts as a kitchen built for now and grows with you as life changes it's flexible by design with full access cabinet construction so you can go from doors to drawers for storage that works when you need it get an appointment free design consultation and explore all our cabinet options on display in our kitchen showroom and save big money now at menards save big money at That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Thank you. 
Rusty Cage. Rusty Cage. That's how you get an album going right, right there. Here. Dirty, strangely tuned, fast bits, slow bits, bit of everything. This was their third single released from the record. Didn't chart here in the States, but it did in the UK. Number 41. Yeah, spent a lot of time being played on alternative radio stations. Cornell wrote the lyrics to the song while they were on tour somewhere in Europe. Go he ahead. Just, he described it as a claustrophobic bus, I believe. Yes. In Europe. Yes. He said he never wrote the words down, but was able to remember a lot of them when they returned to the United States and he was able to pick up a guitar. Weird. Couldn't he pick up a guitar while he was on tour in Europe? Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, he said he wanted to sound, wanted it to sound like Hillbilly Black Sabbath, and he said he had no idea what that meant, but if there was a band that could pull it off, it was Soundgarden. And this is my favorite part right here. So much weird guitar stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, not only is he using weird tunings, but he's also uh, using a bunch of trickery and filters. Yeah, they fed a wah pedal uh, through an audio filter to get that weird sound at the beginning of the song. Yeah, it gets a like a weird kind of guttural sound to yeah. it. Uh, it was unlike anything I'd heard before, obviously, in 1990. It's, it's strange. There's an, also an excellent version of this song done by Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah. On his 1996 album, Unchained. That one's great. It actually won the Grammy for Best Country Album. Right. His version of this song was nominated for the Best Male Country Vocal Performance. Yeah, it was in his Rick Rubin days during the American Songwriter uh, records. Yeah. Um, it, it's good. I do like it. But I am I alone in the opinion that those records that Cash did with Rubin were generally underwhelming? Yeah, I they think are, they were. They're treasured and unique recordings. But for most of them, Cash sounded frail like a shell of what he used to sound like. And I find them all right. I just don't find them very compelling yeah. as musical statements. Well, I um, think a lot of that was, he, he was very broken at that time. Yeah. And just, he had, he, I mean, I hate to say this, but I feel like he wanted to die before that and, and go out a legend. And then he's like, well, fuck, I need money and I need to do something. So that was the yeah. solution. And, you know, like you said, they're treasured. They're great pieces of, of like a time capsule, basically. Well, they're remarkably sparse too. Yes. I mean, there's not a lot of production. I don't know why it had to be Rick Rubin. It could have been <laughs> anybody. It's just a guy, a guy and his guitar with pretty limited instrumentation. So yeah. I don't know. I'm probably one of the few that I'm like, meh, I'm not that. I probably listened to him once or twice and then put him away. I don't listen to him anymore. I'm sure someone's going to bag on me for that. Here's why fine. you're wrong about Johnny Cash and it's 40 pages long. That's right. He did so many great things, not denying that, but you know, whatever. This, uh, this song also has a really long history of being included in video games. Really? Uh, starting in 94 with uh, Road Rash. So only a couple years after the it had come out, it was included in a video game. Road Rash. Yeah. The motorcycle game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all the way up to including uh it's a downloadable content in rock band i do know that yeah so it's uh it's been around for a long time wow. in the world of video games i don't know why this song in particular fits really well now in i want to play games, road rash i'm sorry oh, man get out your original playstation okay it's upstairs in a box outshined Yes. I really think this is the moment that Chris Cornell more or less came into his own. This song was the second single released, reached number 45 in the mainstream rock chart, contains one of the most fantastic lines in all rock and roll history, a line that ended up taking on a life of its own. Yeah. I'm looking California and feeling Minnesota. First time I heard that line, I was like, whoa, that's just great stuff. And Cornell explained it like this. One of the first times I remember writing something personal was on tour. I was feeling really freaky and down. And I looked in the mirror and I was wearing a red t-shirt and some baggy tennis shorts. I remember thinking as bummed as I felt, I looked like I looked like some beach kid. And then I came up with that line. I'm looking California and feeling Minnesota from the song Outshined. And as soon as I wrote it down, I thought it was the dumbest thing. But after the record came out and we went on tour, everyone would be screaming along with that particular line when it came up in the song. And that was a shock. How could anyone know that that was one of the most 
most personally specific things that I had ever written. It was just a tiny line, but somehow, maybe because it was personal, it just pushed that button. Yeah. It's such a great, it's such a great line though. It really is. Does it just encapsulate all of it? You know, it ended up inspiring a movie called Feeling Minnesota. It is a term. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a movie called Feeling Minnesota. <laughs> uh, it is a term that basically has entered the lexicon, but it's most definitely a song that sums up a lot of who Chris Cornell was. He battled the de- those demons of the mind and essentially the song is all about just feeling great and top of the world in one second and then feeling like a sham or a failure the next second. Cornell claimed to rarely get autobiographical in his songs, although I think there's more there than we think there is. Yeah. But well, this is for sure an instance where he's talking about himself. You also can't write music entirely in the third person without having some of your own personal experiences and and, and it's a reflection of you. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's uh exactly what it is. It sounds like this, by the way. also sort of the obligatory song that has to be on every album of this era for any successful band about how their success ruined the creativity of the band. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In this case, too, I think it also speaks to the idea that, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, all these other bands had top 10 hits and Soundgarden hadn't broken through that. Right. And I think that Chris Cornell was not only reflecting a lot of his internal struggles about that, but a lot of the band as a whole, you know, hey, what are we experiencing? Are we too successful for ourselves? You know, Hero had left the band because he was like, I don't want this success. I don't want to be here anymore. This This is too much for me. And I think it's partially reflected on a lot of that. There's also a great line in here that everybody mishears. Uh, it's actually, the grass is always greener where the dogs are shedding. Shedding, not shitting. Not shitting. Um, <laughs> but maybe both. <laughs> it's one of those things where in the liner notes, it clearly says shedding, but then you listen to it and you're like... Mm. Pretty sure, it's pretty sure it wants to be shitting. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I was thinking about that makes it even more autobiographical, at least to me anyway, is the repeating line, so now you know who gets mystified. Mystified means to bewilder or confuse. And I think he's saying, you know, he just can't figure out why his brain does it. Yeah. Super up and confident one minute and then feeling shitty the next. It would be mystifying. And I think that is super appropriate word for it. But once again, I love, love, love the guitar sound on this record. It's crunchy and thick metallic, but not straight metal. There's something else to it. Yeah. It's like an unknown quality. They, They do a good job across all their albums of blending that. It's a very, very heavy guitar noise. It's a very very distorted guitar noise that's very full, mm-hmm. but it never quite strays into that full on heavy metal, you know, s- screaming loud bah, guitar noise. Right. Slaves and Bulldozers. Slaves and Bulldozers. Third track seems sees the album get a little bit darker. I think the song kind of moves back and forth between a blues rock feel and the metal that's more prevalent on this record. Uh, the bass line at the beginning by Ben Shepard is awesome. Yeah, that's there's so many cool parts in this song. Yeah. There's that bass line, Kim Thale's uh, guitar solo in this. Yeah. Uh, according to him, this was his the second song where he would blow on the guitar strings to create a, an effect. That's weird. And he said of it, uh, that's the second song we did where I blow on the guitar. I do it live and people would think I was playing with my tongue or my teeth or my beard. Hey, look, he's playing guitar with his beard. No, I was blowing on it. I was making a wish. That is. <laughs> I wonder what that would do. Does it do anything? Blowing. I mean, on obviously, it does, it does something because he's making a noise with it. That's weird. Uh, other one in this, uh, uh, Chris Cornell's vocals are amazing. Uh-huh. In this, in fact, supposedly, uh, speaking of Rick Rubin from before, yeah, supposedly this is the song that Rick Rubin played to showcase Cornell's vocal abilities to former Rage Against the Machine members before they came together with. Chris to form Audio, Audio Slave. Slave. Yeah. That, so it, apparently it was this song and he's just like, you just got to hear these well, vocals. That tracks, but the song sounds like this. Yeah. 
as iconic as this song is, and as fantastic as it is on this record, what it's most known for yeah. is being the last Soundgarden song performed by the band before Cornell passed away. They generally played this song in the encore, which they did that fateful night in Detroit in 2017. <laughs> they would actually play one more song that night, a creepily appropriate cover of Led yeah. Zeppelin's In My Time of Dying, but this was the last original song they played. I tried really hard. I'm I'm really curious to know, and I could not find this information anywhere, so maybe somebody out there has it from a, a biography or something. Did Chris Cornell intentionally pick that song to end that set? I mean, obviously they had something to, you know, the whole band presumably had something to do with picking the songs they sure. were going to play, but I'm curious to know if that particular night, Chris Cornell was like, we're playing Slaves and Bulldozers, and then we're playing In My Time of Dying as a cover, and then we're walking off stage, knowing that potentially he was going to commit suicide later that night. I don't know. I don't know that, that we'll ever know. It's such a huge loss. Yeah, I mean, is. Chris Cornell was born in 64 in Seattle. His dad was a pharmacist. His mother was an accountant and a psychic. Ooh. Um, he attended Catholic school where he got his first taste of performing, but his mother was Jewish. And after his parents' divorce, she pulled him from that school. During his teenage years, he developed severe depression and at times refused to leave the house, suffering from terrible agoraphobia. He started using pot and alcohol daily. He had a really bad PCP trip that contributed heavily to his agoraphobia. He just never wanted to leave the house. But he seemed to find a salve with rock music. And tragically, that amazing career was cut way too short when he took his own life in 2017. Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog, Audio Slave. He's got a Bond theme, countless awards, three children, a laundry list of artists that idolized that gift of a voice that he had. It was just another heartbreaking tragedy in the history of rock and roll. It's just, yeah. it sucks when that happens. But, and it happens all too often. And we just go right into Jesus Christ pose, right? right? So first of all, how do you read the title of this song? Do you read it as Jesus Christ Pose or Jesus Christ Pose or Jesus Christ Pose? I read it as Jesus Christ Pose. Okay. I was just curious. And we get to it, because this is, without a doubt, my favorite Soundgarden song, probably the heaviest sounding song of the grunge era, blistering rock song with venomous lyrics, yeah. atta attacking artists who fashion themselves as persecuted and adopting the pose of Christ on the cross. Specifically, Chris <laughs> Cornell said that he wrote this about uh, Perry Farrell, Perry Farrell uh, from James, James Addiction lead singer, who would often do the Jesus Christ pose on uh, stage and do the- Yeah, he preens. Yeah. Uh, and he's not wrong, because this actually predates Scott Stapp from Creed. Yeah, by several years. He used to do that all the time. He actually wrote a song about it. With arms wide open. Arms <laughs> but it was this was the first single from the record reached number 30 in the UK did nothing in the the, the states yeah. except court controversy yeah uh, which we, we'll get to in a minute well which we kind of addressed but yeah. song was based off a very athletic drum and bass rhythm that Ben Shepard and Matt Cameron were playing around with in the studio Kim Thale said that they had a really t hard time trying to find parts to blend into it into what they were doing which is why there are all these flying high parts in that weird squeaky feedback soak yeah. part as well as these heavily syncopated sections and he was trying to find his place Kim Thale Cornell would end up taking all that stuff home wind up with some lyrics around the chaos and end up with this song and it sounds fantastic sounds like this In our stunted society, especially in 1991, people had stuff to bitch about because you dared name check Jesus in a song. You bastard. Much like Madonna had dealt with the fallout of casting a black Jesus in her Like Prayer video a few years previous, people cannot handle the blasphemous take on it, even though when you deconstruct the lyrics to the song, it is meant to ridicule other people for assuming the pose of Christ and acting like they are equally persecuted. It was never meant to be anti-religion, but anti-posturing. 
but because it can't be tolerated, MTV went ahead and banned the music video, which to this day has never been shown in its entirety on the channel, because in the imagery, they had a woman on the cross. <gasps> the humanity! However, even though it was banned, yeah. it was shown a couple of times on 120 Minutes and on Headbangers Ball. However, really? it was the shortened version oh. that doesn't have that imagery. Oh, that okay. was cut out. Edited version. So, uh, but critics got it. Yeah. One critic said that Soundgarden sounds a whole hell of a lot smarter than their peers, who rarely get beyond extolling the booze, girls, and cars. Yeah. Heaven forbid you talk about something right. instead of just that. Well, I think this too, this song, I'm, I'm glad this is your favorite because I think this really represents their entire sound in one song mm. and one of the rare songs written by all four members of the band. That's true. So every one of them had, like you were just saying, creative input, writing input. Very interesting that it all came together to make a song that you then picked out and you're like, this one's my favorite. That's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, on August 16th, 1993, I went to the DTE Energy Music Theater, Ooh. formerly known as Pine Knob Amphitheater, now <laughs> once again known as Pine Knob in Clarkston, <laughs> Michigan, to see Soundgarden in concert. Pine. <laughs> to see Soundgarden in concert with Blind Melon and Neil Young and Booker T and the MGs. Ooh. Heather and I went on a whim when we had nothing to do and her parents' house was only 15 minutes away from the venue. Soundgarden was the opening act to the show, not Blind Melon. Weird. And this guy, Chris Cornell, was just freaking amazing. Like, I already know from the record that his voice is otherworldly. But you know how the, there's that moment when in a live setting you hear something that just sounds undoable? Yeah. It was like that. Unfortunately, their set was still in the daylight, oh. which is probably the only thing that detracted from it. But it was mind-bending. And he was a dervish. with He had no shirt on, his long black hair just flying everywhere. And they closed their set with this song. On record, this song is 134 beats per minute. It's pretty fast. Yeah. Live, they did it way faster than that. What? And it was the most incredible performance I had, I had witnessed up to then. It was just nuts. Uh, and I remember almost nothing about the other two sets <laughs> other than Cornell came back out during Neil Young's set and did another feedback drench song because that was Young's you very experimental phase. Don't remember Blind Melon? I'm so disappointed. I'm pretty sure they did No Rain that night. Uh. Probably twice. Oh boy. I'm glad I got to, but I, I'm glad I got to see that performance because it was nuts. That's cool. Nuts. You got any more about uh, the old uh, JC pose? No, I'm, I'm good with the Jesus Christ pose. Jesus Christ pose. Do you want to do it once on, for the video? What? My arms are too wide. You can't see them, but... Bass Pollution? Bass Pollution. What a good name. And all the music for this song written by bass player Ben Shepard, lyrics by Chris Cornell. Coming off the heels of Jesus Christ pose, this is a suitable follow-up. Still fast, still aggressive, still peppered with those really original syncopated parts, this time with all three of the main musicians doing the same thing. Uh, and the song is really just another reason why I've always thought they were the most talented musicians coming out of that Seattle scene at that time. And here's what that section sounds like. Face melter, dude. It's it a is. face melter. It's great. And while the music for the song is great, the lyrics are kind of weird. Uh, I'm numb as rigor mortis, scared by monkey faces, drowned in shark fins. <laughs> I'm not sure what any of that means, uh, but when you start to look at some of the other lyrics, this seems to be there seem to be some strange goings on in Cornell's head. Uh, he references looking in the mirror and the repeated line, "I don't feel like feeling, feeling like you." Yeah, that's from the chorus, and I I feel like that kind of leads back to the the overarching theme of this whole album, themes of this album, excuse me, uh, depression, imposter syndrome, conformity. Right. Uh, you know, the idea that, you know, maybe we're not good enough to be doing this. Right. And I, I mean, I hate when people go back into lyrics after someone commits suicide and says, look, yeah. see, Ooh, this he was, was talking about that Poor shit. because I don't think it's generally that easy, yeah. but you can certainly go back into his lyrics and see where his issues lie, his lack of confidence in his abilities and artistry, uh, that up and down feeling from outshined. It does appear every 
once in a while. And I'm not saying it's indicative of someone that would then kill themselves 14 years later, but there's clearly some evidence of mental struggles, which he readily admitted anyway. One time when he was six years old and they told the dog to play dead, he also played dead. Right? So maybe, maybe that's why he committed suicide I think 38 years later. You figured it out. Bam, I got it. You got it. Mm. You got more for this song? No, that's about it. Somewhere? Somewhere. I gotta be honest with you, this one is not my favorite song on the album. It's That's weird, of, me kind, either. Kind of a weird mishmash of a bunch of different music styles. Yeah, written by Ben Shepard, yeah. who also wrote the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Only one of two songs on the record that Cornell didn't write. Uh, and when you look at the lyrics, it's pretty obvious. They're simpler, yeah. not necessarily clear, but simpler phrases and rhyming schemes. But uh, Cornell didn't develop the vocal melody because he's struggling to find his place. Like you said, it seems disjointed. Yeah, It sounds a little better when we get to the chorus, sounding like this. It's it's definitely a, it's not one of the strongest songs on here, and I, I agree with you. This, the lyrics are much simpler. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. No, um, but you can definitely, if you sit down and listen to it, you're like, this seems a little out of place, and it seems a little uh, uh, standoutish from everything else. If you listen to the vocal melody, it follows the guitar mel- melody almost exactly, like note for note. So I feel like this was written as an instrumental by Shepard, mm. and they liked the groove enough to make an actual full song with lyrics. Interesting. But there's no counter melody, so they're just kind of both along that same line. And it also has that really long extended fade out and then really slow fade back in at the end of the song, like the false ending, because we didn't know what else to do to it. So (laughs) not uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, you know, I wish we could find a better one, but I don't know how I would look for it. Would you perhaps search for it with your good eye closed? We could do it. We could try that. Yeah. Searching with my good eye closed. I think this is one of the best song titles I've ever heard. Yeah. Not sure why. It just sticks in my head and I love it. So one thing I found is a lot of people seem to think that's Chris Cornell at the beginning of this song. Oh, doing the- Reading the narration. It's not. It's a guy named Damon Stewart. He's a DJ from KIS, or was from KISW in Seattle. Uh, He was a really early promoter of grunge and the Seattle sound of rock in the late 80s and early 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's gone on to a long and illustrious career as a DJ. He's still around, I believe. Uh, I think he still does um, uh, occasional hosting gigs and stuff like that, is what it looked like according to his website. Okay. And his song begins with a really long- build in. Uh, It's the seventh song on the record and most likely would have opened the second side of a cassette. Mm -hmm. So it is fitting that it has that long introduction. And then it has that weird speak and spell introduction. Yeah. And the cow says moo and the devil says boom and the song kicks in. That's Damon Stewart. And this is one of my favorites off the record. And I think a lot has to do with the fact that it sounds a lot proggier than some of the other stuff on the album. It's longer. It's more inventive. Uh, The structure of the song is pretty unique and the lyrics are way more esoteric and difficult to crack than some of the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Lines like, painted blue across my eyes and tie the linen on, and I'm on my way, on my way. I'm not sure what that means, but that's okay, because it fits melodically and rhythmically, so I don't mind it. Um, For years, I thought that the line in the chorus was exit to the sky. Mm -hmm. Uh, Made more sense in my head, especially if this is a bit of a psychedelic song, but the line is actually is it to the sky, Mm -hmm. which now makes it a question, and here's what that song sounds like. This song is an indirect cover of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds done in a metal style. 
Is that what you think? That's exactly what I think it is. Oh. If you look at the lyrics, if you look at all the references in it, if you look at the listen to the psychedelic parts and things, even sort of the way that the song builds and everything feels a lot like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. If you go listen to both of them back to back, you'll hear a lot of those things. I, I immediately, I just- I like that take. I listened to it and I was like, why do I know this from somewhere? Why does this feel so familiar to me other than, you know, just being this song? It took me a couple of days to be like, oh yeah. And then I listened to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds right after it. And I was like, oh yeah. On so, a whim or did you just have a feeling? Just I just felt like it. Okay. I just, it, I had a feeling. I was driving in the car and I actually pulled over to find Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. That's weird. I was like, let's try that. And I'm making, sure enough. Making myself a note to try that. They don't, you know, obviously there's not like a, a direct, like these fit together perfectly, but right. there's a lot of that kind of cross reference of the way both songs feel and the way they both build at the beginning and the way they both end. It fits really well. This isn't a Wizard of Oz, uh, Dark this is, Side no, of the Moon no, 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 situation. No, 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 it's not a Wizard of Oz, Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> so the third time the lion roars, you hit play or you drop, if you're doing it with an album, you drop the needle. If you're doing it with the cassette, you hit play. What if I drop the needle slightly inside the wax. Yo, that, it, you've screwed it all. Oh. Nothing will sync up now. But it's a great song. Yeah. A lot of that credit goes to producer D- uh, Terry Date, who I haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. Specializes in metal, has a very extensive resume from Dream Theater and Ozzy to more recent bands like Deftones and Bring Me the Horizon. You know what else he produced, Kyle? What? One of your favorite ba- albums of all time. Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Ooh. Flavored Water by Limp Biscuit. Hot Dog Flavored Water? I know how much. chocolate starfish. I know how much you love that record. Oh, so great. The, the sound that he got on this record. <clears throat> Sorry. It's awesome. The balance between instruments and the voice is superb. I think the easy thing to do would have been to push that voice to the front of the mix because it's so dominating, but it's well balanced. He just does a great job with it. That's one other thing I should bring up. And I, I could not find a, a clear answer to this. So uh, the, the version of this that I listened to was remastered. Uh, it was remastered in 2016. Yeah. That was the only version I could find digitally and I didn't want to spend the money to order an album or an original copy on CD. I'm curious to know if the original version sounded as clean as the remastered version does. Do you have an original yep. copy? Does it sound as clean as this? Yep. That's really cool to me because this was right at the beginning of those loudness, loudness wars. Yep. And so many of the grunge albums, especially the ones that used heavy distortion and all that stuff, absolutely just cranked it. So it was just this fat noise in there filling all the bandwidth. Yes, it was. That's cool that they had somebody mix it in a way that you can actually, even though it's loud, distorted guitars, you can hear them. You can you pick can out the clarity. Yeah, exactly. you, can, you can even pick out little uh, keyboard events that they threw in there that you wouldn't have heard otherwise. Yeah. Room a Thousand Years Wide. Room a Thousand Years Wide. It's one of the very rare songs in the Soundgarden catalog that Chris Cornell had no role in mm-hmm. its composition. The music was written by drummer Matt Cameron. Lyrics were written by Kim Thale. And I really wish he had written more lyrics for the band because they're really good. Yeah, they are. Uh, it seems he's near me as I walk. One who loved one, what love denied. He lives these years that I walk blind. All these years cannot be mine. That's excellent for someone who doesn't normally write lyrics. Yeah. A lot of people have guessed that there are a lot of biblical connotations to these lyrics because of the thousand year reference. People look to the book of Revelation naturally because that's where people look when they are looking for something sinister, even though there's plenty of sinister stuff in the rest of the book to go around. Yeah. Uh, but they reference the line, after a thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison. Thale has refuted this many times, saying he just writes lyrics to fit melodies and rhythms, and if interesting stuff comes out, it is rarely with intention. Well, I don't think it helps that he used the word begat several times in this as well. Tomorrow begat tomorrow. Yeah. Which does sound biblical. But did you find out where it was from? Yeah. So uh, he said that it was from the 1922 film Haxon, which is a film about the devil and witchcraft. Yeah. Uh, In case you're not familiar, begat literally means a man man or a man and a woman bring a child into existence through reproduction. So do you know what that means? What? It's a fuck song. It is. It's a fuck song. (laughs) Room a thousand years wide is a fuck song, everybody. Well, what does it sound like? Probably like this. Okay.
So after that last discussion, yeah. does this mean if we ever cover a Christian rock band, there's a begatting song on it instead of a fuck song? Yeah. Sweet. All right. I just want to make yeah. sure. <laughs> it's a begat song. It's a begat song. <laughs> there's like three begat songs on this one record. Spring, oh my god. I dig the groove for this song. It's really good. It's really well developed, probably because this predates the record by at least a year. Yeah. So there was plenty of time to work on it. And then they completely re-recorded it for this because it was done on sub pop and, and that's the way you get around the copyright. Exactly. And there's just that great metal darkness to it. Uh, the one thing I could uh, completely do without, though, is that guitar siren sound that oh, is yeah. present through most of the song. First of all, one of the times I heard it, I thought I was being chased by the cops because this was like 1991. <laughs> I'm like, oh shit, my stash. <laughs> I kept looking around for the for the sound of the siren, I, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> but this, is, but it gets really annoying by the second verse. You're like, oh, shut up! I can't believe I threw that out. What did it cause? Did it cause you to like react in any kind of a way? Yeah, yeah. Did you have a mind riot? I had a bit of a mind riot. That's the next song. It's generally, yeah. it, for Mind Ride, it's one of the more mellow tracks, yeah. I guess. It's calmer, a little lighter. I like that it's kind of a nice cool down after that. It kind of just brings you down, cools it's, you down a little bit. It's written with some rough edges, though. Yeah. Cornell wrote the song in the wake of Andrew Wood's overdose. Again, he was the lead singer of Mother Love Bone, like we talked about earlier. And, and Malfunction. Yeah, Cornell and him were very close. Uh, the song is unique in that every single string on the guitar is tuned to a different octave of E. <laughs> Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam suggested it to Cornell, and he said it would be really weird. He's not wrong. It's yeah. really weird, and it sounds like this. There's that unbelievable point towards the end of the song where he unleashes his this banshee yeah. wail, uh, and it's just incredible. That's like great. I don't know how he could have done that every night on tour. I don't remember if they did this song when I saw him, but either way, he sang a lot of songs that hit that note, and it could have not could not have been easy on his throat. This would definitely be one of those songs that like you know it's coming up, and you're just like, oh, shit, I can't do that tonight, and <laughs> oh, you're just trying to decide like, do I blow my voice out and we cancel tomorrow night, or, or do, do I just I, drop an octave? Do I half ass it tonight? And do like, I slide down and go, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. I think this is my favorite song on here. Mind Riot? Yeah. Really? Weirdly enough, I think that it is. I like it. It's very relaxing to me. Something about the, That's strange. the slowdown and the, the sound of it. I, I really like it. But I like that we have, uh, you know, different opinions yeah. about that. Drawing Flies? Drawing Flies. Back into some heavy stuff. See, and I love this song. And it's always been one of my favorites. Another song uh, with the music written by Matt Cameron. Go drummers. <laughs> yeah. Writing songs. Uh, the lyrics are written by Chris Cornell, and they are some of my favorite on the record as well. It's one of the shortest songs, uh, and it just gets right to the point. No slow lead-in. Uh, and when you really start to deconstruct the lyrics of this song, you get a lot of the same thing. Uh, themes, part of the chorus. What are you yelling about? Conditions, permission, mirrored self-affliction. So we get to that returning self-reflection, self self-affliction, yeah. where he's really judgmental about his own life and what stares back at him in the mirror. And then the verses, sitting here like uninvited company, wallowing in my own obscenity. I share a cigarette with negativity, leaning on the pedestal that holds my self-denial. I don't know why, but when this album came out, that line really spoke to me specifically. It wasn't uh, the happiest of times in my life in that period between the release of this record and meeting Heather. There was an eight-month span where I was highly destructive to myself and other relationships around me, and this line was certainly how I felt right down to the cigarette with negativity. That's funny. I wrote that exact line. That's the only lyric I have from this song is, I share a cigarette with negativity. It's such a good line. Uh, it's a Great it's line. such a good line. Uh, and uh, that song sounds like this. Oh, 
So uh, in some ways, I really love this song. And in other ways, that song is really hard to listen to. Mm-hmm. It's a very grim reminder of sometimes I'd rather not remember, you know, but it's a great song nonetheless. I mean, it's still a fantastic song. It's just some of those things are like pointed, <laughs> like, ugh, 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 shut up, Chris <laughs> Cornell. How do you know about that? Yeah. Holy water? <laughs> Holy water. Back to the religious imagery. Uh, it comes on strong right away. Holy water on the brain and I'm losing sleep. Oof. Holy Bible on the nightstand next to me as I'm raped by a monkey circus freak. Monkey circus freak. Trying to take my indignance away from me. From me. Yeah. It's another dirty sounding song. And it really, is it any wonder that this album appealed to me as much as it did back then? <laughs> it's, no. It still does, but I don't think to the same level. Don't get me wrong. You know, it holds up and it's strong, but I was definitely going through something at the time. Uh, some of the lines, as you mentioned, like raped by another circus monkey freak or monkey circus freak I could do without but that's that kind of esoteric writing that Cornell would sometimes use you know just imagery and stuff but some of the other stuff holy water's rusting me yeah what a great line this was the the period of my deepest spiritual crisis something we've addressed many times uh, when I didn't know what or who to believe when it came to religion uh, the beliefs of my youth at that time were fracturing yet I was still heavily involved in groups tied to it in fact is how I met Heather but it was painful because I knew how disappointed my parents would be and still are. And it was a terrible existential type crisis. So I became attached to a lot of these songs because they at least reflected what I was feeling at the time. Um, And the song itself sounds like this. idea and the imagery that even though it's holy water, it can still rust things. Mm-hmm. That to me, that's like such a cool lyrical image is painted by that immediately because you're like, you immediately think of rust as a bad negative thing and you're like, oh, but this is holy, holy water can still rust. Great, great imagery. Yeah. And what I said before the uh, the music that it reflects a lot of what I was feeling at the time, but when I met Heather and was able to navigate a lot of those hurdles that were so painful and confounding to me, I put this record away for a long time because I had stopped feeling that way. And I wanted to listen to songs that reflected that newer mood. So it went unlistened to for years and years and years, probably until the point I was able to separate the songs from the feelings I was having and just appreciate it as music. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad you were able to come back to it. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because it's, I mean, it rocks. Yeah. But Did, didn't have to become an album that you're like, I can never listen to that again. I don't know that I have one of those. I don't think I have an album that I will never listen to again because of feel. I'll list, not listen listen to records because they suck. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. There's that, a lot of those. Yeah, I don't know that there's a record that's like, there's too much emotion tie, tied to that. I can never listen to that again. I just take breaks and stuff. Uh, new Damage. New Damage. Last song on the record, perfectly placed because it is my least favorite song on the record. <laughs> so a lot of the times I would just skip it. <laughs> <laughs> and the record's over. Continuing the same themes the rest of the album has, you know, self, you know, depression. Mm-hmm. Are we good enough? Imposter syndrome. You know, uh, at least it's it's a slow song that kind of plays you out of the album. Yeah, and there's um, not a lot of distinct melody to it either. No. It's noisy song. Yeah. I appreciate the noise. There's, but an, there's an okay guitar solo in here as well. That's true. It's not bad, but. But uh, this is what uh, New Day. Damage sounds like.
It's unfortunate that the the album ends this way, uh, but it happens. Yeah. There are many great records that rightly put the worst song at the very end, knowing that a lot of people never really get to the end. Uh, but that's uh, it. So that's Bad Motorfinger by Bad Soundgarden. Bad Motorfinger, all one word. An album that certainly gets overlooked because of the behemoth records that were released around it. It gets swamped. Yeah. Uh, but it really is my favorite record of that era. And while I put it aside for a long time for personal reasons, it's nice to come back and give it a listen. Uh, let us know what you think about this record. Please. Or any other record by contacting us on our social media. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash audio judo, Twitter at audio judo, or Instagram at audio underscore judo. If you want a quicker response, you can always email us at info at audio judo.com. We check that regularly. It's delivered right to our phone, sometimes mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, sometimes if Kyle's in Europe, whatever it happens. Yeah. Uh, would you like to give a shout out to our patrons? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, Simon, welcome to the shout it out loud tier. Hell yeah. Uh, Hell yeah. Here, here, here. Uh, front row seats here, Aaron P, Darlene W, and Michael A. Welcome. Thank you for your support. Backstage pass tier, uh, Christian S, David W, Michael S, and Scott K. Appreciate all of you. You are the ones who keep the lights on around here. Well, technically Matthew's wife keeps the lights on Pretty around here. Pretty much it's just her. But uh, you buy us a lot of beer, so yeah, we that's appreciate true. that. Um, we have episodes coming up about the Moody Blues, mm-hmm. No Doubt, mm-hmm. Talking Heads, oh, yeah. Marvin Gaye. So please come back and join us for additional content like Judo Chops. Don't forget to check out our Patreon and also check out the new Pantheon Podcast app in the App Store or the Play Store. Until then, we will talk to you again in two weeks. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.